0: Hello everyone, this is Henry Volk, and you're listening to Theology in Perspective, the podcast about Pentecostal theology. And I am so excited to be here with you in your earbuds, in your speaker, however you're listening to the podcast. I just want to say I'm so thankful for you for tuning in, and it's all about you, the listener. And so please, I, I ask you if you like what I'm doing, Go into iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you use and rate the podcast. And you can also email me suggestions, feedback, uh, criticisms, whatever you want. If you have a prayer request or whatever, or you just want to chat, email me at studioussaint at gmail.com. saint at gmail.com. And you can reach me there. Uh, Before I start today's show, I want to give a quick plug for this awesome resource I've started using. I was in Barnes and Noble um, this past weekend and I picked up a book called Common Prayer, A Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals. It's called Common Prayer, A Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals. And Let me tell you, this devotional book is so great. I just want to plug this resource. You should get it. It's such a, it's been just a blessing to me using it. And it is also a great way if you've never been around the liturgical tradition. It's a very evangelical friendly resource. It is a great first exposure to liturgical worship. And so, uh, back to the topic at hand. On today's show, I'm going to do a continuation of the last podcast which was entitled Old Time Theology. So this is Old Time Theology Part 2. So just a quick uh, summary of the last podcast in case you didn't uh, happen to listen. I highly suggest you go back and listen to it. My I had three points. Point number one is or was theology is God talk. Point number two was theology is faith seeking understanding. And my third point was is that doing theology is an act of worship to God. And so today, I, I want to delve into the, the nuts and bolts of theology a little bit more, if there is such a thing. And, you know, theology, in addition to being God-talk and faith-seeking understanding, theology is basically a term used to denote the study of God or things religious as a science. And so, you know, in the last podcast, those definitions of theology presented theology as a task. The second definition I just gave, the study of God, or things religious as a science, this presents theology as a subject. And the, the very interesting thing is, we can find both of these understandings of the word in antiquity. So the philosopher Plato, in his infamous book, The Republic, uses the term theology to denote the writings of the Greek poets about the gods. And the philosopher Aristotle, who was Plato's student, uh, referred to the followers of Hesiod, the famous Greek poet, as theologians. And so, you know, here Plato and Aristotle present the poets' writings as theologies. So, the, the poets, uh, being theologians, according to Aristotle and Plato, engaged in the task of theology to produce their epics and their cosmogonies. The, those are accounts of the births of the gods and the creation of the universe. And these are some of the earliest mentions of the word theology prior to the advent of Christianity. And so, we can see here how that Plato and Aristotle saw theology as a task. It was something that the poets did. It meant that they wrote down stories about the Greek gods. Plato also uses this term the principles of theology but it's kind of connected also to the stories about the Greek gods. However, Aristotle saw theology as a theoretical science. Aristotle believed that there were three theoretical sciences. Physics, mathematics and theology he called theology the highest science because according to aristotle the highest science must deal with the highest gayness of being or genus whichever you prefer so unlike a lot of you know academics or philosophers or thinkers today uh aristotle didn't really see theology as being separate from other sciences so and this is what aristotle said there must be, then, three theoretical philosophies, mathematics, physics, and what we may call theology, since it's obvious that, the, that if the divine is present anywhere, it is also present in these sorts of things. So it's, it's so interesting that Aristotle even saw the divine as being present in mathematics and physics we do have Aristotle to thank for clearly defining theology as a subject. But this also opens up a whole new can of worms because then this also shows that theology is just not a Christian venture. So as we've seen, you know, the Greek poets and philosophers engaged in theology, and every religion has its own theology or theologies. You know, there's Islamic theology, there's Hindu theology, I guess there's Buddhist theology, but technically, um, Buddhism is a non-theistic religion. And so what, what makes Christian theology distinct from all other theologies is our understanding of the knowledge of God. So how do we know about God? Because you know there's no theology without the theos. God. You know, there's no God talk without God and a third definition of theology um... would be simply the study of god you know so we often use theology as a uh... as a term to denote the study of uh, christian religion or the or the philosophy of religion but there is theology proper which is uh... the science of god what do we know about god and so for we can know what about God, we have to know, how do we know about God? And so we know God through his self-revelation. And so we see, like, in Scripture, for instance, let's say, like, 1 Samuel 3.7 says, Now Samuel didn't yet know the Lord, neither was the Lord's word revealed to him. Uh, in the New Testament, we see Jesus uh, says to Peter, Jesus answered him, saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we know that we know about God, because God reveals himself to us. And so this makes Christianity different than, let's say, the philosophers, because the philosophers uh, begin their theology and the theological process with uh, abstract thought. And so for someone like Aristotle, to see God as the first mover was a a logical move, more or less. You know, all things are in motion. uh, All things are causally related. uh, is that law of cause and effect. Therefore, for all things to be in motion, there had to be a first mover who put all things into motion. However, Christianity doesn't start with this abstract uh, speculation. It starts with God's self-revelation. So what does that mean, God's self-revelation? So God's self-revelation is his giving humanity knowledge of himself, of his will, and of his works. So we see in the scripture, for instance, uh, let's say with Moses, right? So the scriptures say that God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham isaac and jacob as god almighty god is appearing god is revealing first john 4 9 says by this god's love was revealed in us that god sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him so here god is actually revealed in us so we need to to ask ourselves how has god revealed himself So, so in in essence, where where is God's revelation contained? And so, I want to talk about three different kinds of revelation. There is special revelation, natural revelation, and private revelation. So, special, special revelation. So, the Christian tradition, unlike, let's say, the philosophical tradition, assumes that religion and God is inherently outside of human consciousness because of sin. And it assumes that our knowledge of God is based on God's self-revelation. So our knowledge and our experience of the divine is mediated through this revelation. And so we need to see first of all that God's self-revelation is given in history and it has a uniquely historical character. This revelation which is now codified in the scriptures is referred to as special revelation. Um, so since, you know, this revelation of God has happened in history, you know, Jesus Christ came in history. God spoke to the prophets in history. It's also mediated by the sources in which that historical revelation is contained. And so for Christians, this primary source of theological knowledge is the bible and so you know i don't want to get into different views of the bible that's a whole another can of worms but i want to focus in on this is that we need to see that the word of god is not merely confined to a book called the bible right that's a fundamentalist reduction of a really beautiful christian doctrine in Christianity, the Word of God is preeminently Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Logos or Word of God. You know, so First John, uh, or John, not First John, but John one one says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, well, was with God, and the Word was God." The Word being Jesus Christ. So we need to see that the Word of God is understood as the revelation of God's past involvement and current investment in human history. I want to repeat this. The Word of God is the revelation of God's past involvement and current investment in human history. And that's why Christ is understood to be the ultimate and final revelation of God. He's the culmination and the perpetuation of God's involvement in history. And since the scriptures are a witness to God's involvement in history and to the enfleshed Word of God, Jesus Christ, the scriptures constitute a Word of God in themselves. That's that's why the Bible is the Word of God. So this is why when we read the Bible, we're, we believe we encounter the Word of God. Um, but this does get down to another thing. Um, and this is where the uh, philosophical and the Christian traditions really kind of... Uh, Part ways, I guess you could say. This view presupposes a certain understanding of the nature of God. God is transcendent. So in order for human beings to possess knowledge of the divine, God must condescend and reveal God's self in in human history. So there's some theologians who hold that God is wholly transcendent. So that's to say that nothing can be known about God apart from Revelation. So Carl uh, Barth, who I quoted on the last episode, was a huge proponent of this view. Um, Barth says that, "...when we Christians speak of God, we may and must be clear that this word signifies a priori the fundamentally other, the fundamental deliverance from that whole world of man seeking, conjecturing, illusion, imagining, and speculating." So basically for Bart, you can't speculate your way to God. You can't think your way to God apart from God revealing himself to you. Because God's transcendent. He is beyond us. He is wholly other. And so according to this view, there's no immediate knowledge or experience of the divine apart from special special, uh, revelation. So that means that God is only known by his effects in history, there's no immediate knowledge or innate knowledge or fellowship with God in the human soul or consciousness, and so that that relation between humanity and God is created by this reflection on God's word. That's theology. That's what constitutes theology for someone like Bart. So Bart says, theology itself is a word, a human response. Yet what makes it theology is not its own word or response, but the word, the word which it hears and to which it responds. So for Bart, and for those who have this strict view, this uh, hard understanding of Revelation, that theology is a response to the word which God has spoken in human history. However, you know, most Christians and most theologians for the history, you know, for the last 2,000 years, the history of the church have not held this hard view. So, you know, all Christians have always held to an understanding of special revelation. However, you know, most Christians throughout the history of the church have uh, believed in a knowledge of God contained in nature, and that can be arrived at via human reason. So in other words, you know, there are things we can know about God by observing nature or just from logic, you know, from reasoning. So of course Barth would disagree, but then again, uh, most of the Christian tradition disagrees with Barth on this point. And so this is referred to as natural or general revelation. It's not specific or or special. This is referred to as natural or general revelation because it's non-specific, unlike special or specific revelation where God is actually revealing himself. But concerning natural revelation, you know, philosophy and Christianity agree. You know, and natural revelation was accepted by Christians since the earliest days of the church. In fact, you know, the apostle Paul clearly believed in a natural revelation. So in the epistles in the epistle to the Romans, he says, For the invisible things of him, since the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity. And of course, Paul actually took this concept farther, even claiming that the Greek poets and philosophers had arrived at some kind of knowledge of God. Right, So we have Paul's whole sermon on uh, Mars Hill, uh, about the unknown God, right? And so many of the church fathers uh, following Paul held that the philosophers had knowledge of God derived from special revelation or not special revela- <laughs> not special revelation, I'm sorry from natural revelation. And this doesn't change the fact that Christianity has always understood specific revelation as being superior to natural revelation. We've always believed that. Specific revelation is superior to natural or general revelation. So the early Christian apologist Justin Martyr said, For whatever either lawgivers or philosophers utter well, uttered well, they elaborated by finding and contemplating some part of the Word. But they did not know the whole of the Word, which is Christ. And so... Justin here for instance sees that the philosophers through reason which in Greek logos means word but it also means reason uh, according to Justin you know, the philosophers were able to come at some knowledge of the word but because they lacked that specific revelation they did not have the whole of the word which Justin says is Christ and so once again this is that that term logos is a technical term in Greek philosophy. We, we see it first used by the philosopher Heraclitus. Um, but, you know, the, the church fathers really did appreciate philosophy. And I, I'll be pulling in philosophy from time to time in this podcast because, you know, throughout the history of Christianity, there are a lot of intersections between philosophy and theology, so, for instance, I just want to give this statement from the church father, Clement of Alexandria. Accordingly, before the advent of, the, of our Lord, philosophy was necessary to the Greeks for righteousness. And now it becomes conducive to piety, being a kind of preparatory training to those who attain faith through demonstration. Perchance, too, philosophy was given to the Greeks directly and primarily, till the Lord should call the Greeks... For this was a schoolmaster to bring the Hellenic mind, as the law to the Hebrews, to Christ. Philosophy, therefore, was a preparation, paving the way for him who is perfected in Christ. So Clement, man, dropping that philosophy bomb. He, so Clement actually saw philosophy as like a law to the Greeks. So what the Mosaic Law was to the Hebrews Philosophy was to the Greeks. God was preparing the Greeks for Christianity, and so Clement saw philosophy as a kind of divine revelation. And of course, I do have to be fair. Not all of the church fathers or early church writers held that opinion. And so the the early Christian writer Tertullian um, he basically believed the exact opposite. So this is what Tertullian said. He said, Wretched Aristotle, who established for them the dialectic art, so ingenious in the construction and refutation of propositions, so crafty in statements, so forced in hypotheses, so inflexible in arguments, so laborious in disputes, so damaging even to itself, always reconsidering everything so that it treats so that it never treats thoroughly of anything at all. What then has Athens in common with Jerusalem? What then hath the academy in common with the church? What then have heretics in common with Christians? And so Tertullian, he felt like the exact opposite about philosophy, than Clement did. So, Tertullian's grievance, though, with this kind of Stoic or Platonic dialectical Christianity, as he calls it, is precisely due to his understanding of special revelation. However, uh, albeit somewhat ironically, Tertullian disbelieves in the typical Christian understanding of special revelation. So, Tertullian says we have no need of speculative inquiry. After we have known Jesus Christ, nor of search for the truth after we have received the gospel, but you know, to speak generally, this is where the the philosophical and the religious traditions diverge on the matter of epistemology, or what, you know, how do you know what you know? Theory of knowledge, and so you know, granted the vast majority of Christians have not followed Tertullian, uh, most. Christian thinkers have had an appreciation for philosophy, for natural revelation. But, you know, so while we've admitted to natural revelation, uh, Christianity can never admit to a natural revelation that uh, succeeds private revelation. So natural revelation can precede special revelation, but it cannot succeed it. So there's one more type of revelation I want to go over and that's private revelation or we can kind of talk about the inner witness of the Holy Spirit Uh, More or less, private revelation is the supernatural impartation of knowledge to the believer So some identify private revelation with the gift of prophecy which certainly should Uh, Paul talked about having private revelations Uh, in the context of Christian worship. So Paul says, uh, What is it then, brothers, when you come together? Each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done to build each other up. That's 1 Corinthians 14.26. So private revelation is the communication of God's will by God to the believer. Paul says again, I went up by revelation, and I laid before them the good news which I preach among the Gentiles. That's Galatians two, 2. And so, you know, that's the idea that God does communicate with us, that he does bear witness with our spirits, that he does communicate his will to us somehow. However, this one's iffy. Pentecostals have always believed in private revelation. But I've Fear that uh, that it's often been taken too lightly, to be honest. Because while private revelation can be a great blessing to the believer, first of all, we have to understand that it is secondary and subservient to special revelation. You know, it's always secondary and subservient to special revelation. So, if any believer claims to have a revelation from God that is contrary to Scripture, or they believe, like, supersedes Scripture, so we can see, like, uh, say, like the Book of Mormon, you know, so Joseph Smith believes he got a revelation from God that, that somehow corrected the Bible or it, it, you know, uh, supplemented the Bible, and we know that revelation is false. So, Scripture really does take this matter of private revelation very seriously. So in Deuteronomy 1820 it says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, the same prophet shall die. Man, that's harsh. You know, Uh, it was nothing to play around with. You know, in the Old Testament that that if you had a revelation and you said something was going to happen in the name of God, then it better happen. And that's how you know the revelation is true or false. And St. Paul, likewise, has a very strong word of warning. So he says in Galatians 1.8, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So if anyone comes with another message... And that doesn't, they don't always have to say, well, I got this message from the Holy Spirit. But if they did not, or if that message contradicts uh, the gospel or what the scriptures plainly say, then that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not God speaking to them. And so, it takes discernment, but our discernment comes from clinging to special revelation, to the Word of God, to God's revelation in history. And so, uh, has revelation ceased you know, this is always a, a big uh, topic of, of discussion I feel like among like Pentecostals and Baptists, has, has revelation ceased has prophecy ceased and so we need to see that yes specific or special revelation did cease during the apostolic era why well scripture tells us in Hebrews 1 one through 1-2 says God having in the past spoken to the fathers through the prophets and many times in various ways has at the end of these days spoken to us by his son it ceased because Jesus Christ the word of God has been revealed in history end of story Jesus has revealed himself in history the word of God he is the revelation of God in human flesh He's, you know, says, like the scripture says, in the past, God spoke by the prophets, but now, you know, at the last of these days, God's spoken to us by his son. Jesus came in history. The scriptures are a witness to this history. Right? So, natural, however, I, I mean, so yes, revelation has ceased, but natural revelation hasn't ceased. Nature's still here. The world's still here. Reason is still here. So natural revelation is still here. And private revelation has not ceased because the Holy Spirit continues to reveal Christ and enlighten sinners to the truth of the gospel. You know, and, and God directs us and God guides us through his Holy Spirit. So yes, revelation has ceased, but only specific revelation. Not necessarily personal revelation and definitely not natural revelation and so i uh I just want to conclude this and this wasn't necessarily uh so much about theology as it was about revelation, but I just kind of wanted to set this up for our next podcast, which which would be about God we'll be talking about God, the big g o d what what is God who is God uh we've kind of talked about we've we've talked about how we know about God on this episode we know about God through his self revelation. So what about this God who has revealed himself in history? We'll be talking about that next time on Theology and Perspective. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Henry Gold.